Hey everyone, it's Bina007 here for Vassals of Kingsgrave's Agatha Christie Reread. Today we are doing a mini pod, it's our 31st episode, and we are discussing N or M, which is a rare Tommy and Tuppence thriller. It's a mini pod because I'm not sure that it's particularly well plotted, but it is interesting insofar as part of the motivation for doing this linear reread was to see how Agatha Christie reflected how society changed over her 50-year career. And this is one of the few books that was written and set in World War II and really reflects the mood of those early months of the war. I think to its detriment in terms of sales in the United States, which was not yet in the war and resented a book dripping with the tension, anxiety and suspicions of those early months and years. This is the first Tommy and Tuppence novel since 1929, and we meet our crime-fighting espionage sleuths now in middle-aged and rather resentful. The war has taken off, and they are left without anything interesting to do. Their now grown-up children have interesting war work, and Tommy in particular rather resents being left on the shelf. He's too old to sign up. He's not being given or offered any interesting war work. Until the day when an old employer walks into their house and offers him the chance to go to a British seaside town under an assumed name and to try and find a pair of Nazi fifth columnists. So one is a man, one is a woman. And this was a paranoid, well, maybe justified, actually, suspicion that many Brits had in the early days of the war that in preparation for an invasion of Britain, that there were Nazi secret agents hidden on the island who were preparing the way in case of invasion to collaborate and to ease that invasion along. So maybe logistically, in terms of helping the troops arrive, or maybe even, so to say, politically and socially by preparing sympathetic opinions towards the Nazis to make the post-invasion occupation easier. So this is the atmosphere of the novel. And of course, as we know from previous Tommy and Tuppence novels, Tommy is very much the man of action, although he does have a proclivity for getting bashed over the head. And Tuppence, his wife, is the one who is maybe more the brains of the outfit. And this is reflected in the novel. So she overhears that Tommy's been offered very hush-hush war work and ends up going also down to the same seaside town with a different assumed name, so they're not husband and wife undercover, to help him out with the case. So that's the preamble to the book. Maybe a little explanation of the title, N or M. The title is taken from the Catechism of the Book of Common Prayer. We know that Christie was an Anglican, so a member of the Church of England. What is your Christian name? Answer N or M. The N or M here stands for the Latin nomen vel nomina, meaning name or names. So let's give a little bit of context of what was happening in Britain at the time of publication. This book came out in November 1941, but was written um, the prior year. But in wartime, when Christie is in London, very much in fear for her life, rightly so, under constant attack and using writing, she wrote this and Body in the Library, our next novel, concurrently as a way to compartmentalise her life and escape into novel writing. 
So this book is meant to be set in 1940 during the evacuation of Dunkirk, which is one of the most seminal and mythologized moments in the British experience of World War II. And if you want to know more about that period, I would suggest watching the amazing Christopher Nolan film Dunkirk, which gives you both the logistics of what happened, but also the myth. And in fact, what I resented about that film is it very much does lean into that patriotic slash jingoistic myth of Dunkirk. So given the ignominy of Dunkirk, there's a lot of talk in the book about why we were doing badly in 1940, about whether expectations of the length of the war need to be revised and overturned. There's a lot of talk about the difficulty of getting hold of good food because, of course, rationing starts. I think it's a really great description of the everyday feelings and fears of everyday people in the start of World War II. And a couple of examples of that um, in the text. So there's a passage, a quote, Well, the war didn't go that way. It started badly and it went on worse. The men were all right. The men on the battleships and in the planes and in the dugouts. But there was mismanagement and unpreparedness. The defects, perhaps, of our qualities. We don't want war, haven't considered it seriously, and weren't good at preparing for it. And I think that speaks to the climate of appeasement and fear in the run-up to World War II. Lots of politicians, lots of people did not want war. And that's what you see in that handover to Churchill about the one person who really was saying, look, war's inevitable against someone like Hitler and we need to get on with it. Um, there's another really telling bit of dialogue between Miss Minton and Mr. Cayley. We're saying that it will be all over by the autumn. Nonsense, said Mr. Cayley. This war is going to last at least six years. Oh, Mr. Cayley, protested Tuppence. You don't really think so. And my goodness, how prescient that was, because the war would last six years, which feels interminable. And of course, rationing, food rationing, clothes rationing would last a decade. And then, of course, to the, the topic of this novel, which is the idea of foreign agents in the country stirring up travel, trouble. Um, this, is, this is a passage when Tommy's being recruited not even that. We watch, and they know we watch, all the enemy aliens in this country. Moreover, this is in confidence, Beresford, very, very nearly all enemy aliens between 16 and 60 will be interned. So I think this is really fascinating, the conversation about when you have um, enemy citizens in your country, maybe perfectly well-behaved, good quality, wonderful citizens, or maybe refugees from enemy countries who are good people and who fled that country because they're not in sympathy with that regime. What do you do in war? Do you intern them just to be on the safe side? And it's just fascinating to see that come through in the novel as well. So for all of those reasons, I find this a really, really interesting, socially interesting novel. A bit of uh, historic context between Evil Under the Sun being published and this novel coming out in November of 1941. What was the British readership experiencing in those months? In July of 1941, the British Army's Special Air Service is formed, SAS, so one of the most mythologised and admired parts of the army. Japan first drafted a million men. Commercial television is authorised by the Federal Communications Commissions in the US, so you start getting NBC and CBS broadcasting. Postcodes are introduced in Germany, and sadly, sinisterly, um, under instructions from Adolf Hitler, Nazi official Hermann Goering orders SS General Reinhard Heydrich to submit to me as soon as possible a general plan of the administrative material and financial measures 
measures necessary for carrying out the desired final solution of the Jewish question. So, so early in the war, that is the intent made clear. In August of 1941, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Winston Churchill meet on board a ship at Naval Station Argentia, Newfoundland. The Atlantic Charter, setting goals for post-war international cooperation, is created as a result. So even though the US is not in the war, we're starting to see that cooperation. We also see the Anglo-Soviet invasion of Iran to secure the Persian Corridor and oil fields. And in further Holocaust developments, there is the Kamianets-Podilsky massacre, where 23,600 Jews are shot dead by Einsatzgruppen troops and local collaborators in Ukraine. Unfortunately, this news continues in September 1941. The first use of Zyklon B, the pesticide, to execute Soviet prisoners of war en masse at Auschwitz. This will eventually be the method used to kill 1.2 million people, predominantly Jews. In all Jewish-occupied areas, all Jews over the age of six have to wear the yellow star of David. We also see the Babi Yar massacre, where German troops assisted by Ukrainian police and local collaborators kill 33,771 Jews in Kyiv. And closer to home... Uh, Charles Lindbergh, at an America First Committee rally in Des Moines, Iowa, accuses the British, the Jewish and the Roosevelt administration of leading the United States towards war. Widespread condemnation of Lindbergh follows, I note, but no real help is given to the Jews trying to flee Europe, I also note. Um, The construction of the Pentagon begins in Washington, D.C. I didn't know that. And (laughs) this is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. On September 14th, the state of Vermont declares war on Germany by defining the United States to be in an armed conflict in order to extend a wartime bonus to Vermonters in the service. There you go. October 1941, um, very sadly, tragically, the Nazi German Majonet concentration camp opens and occupied Poland near Lublin. During the course of the war, 200,000 people will be killed in that camp. Um, the Nazis begin the construction of the Belsek extermination camp. The Soviet government moves to modern Samara, so Kubyshev. Um, Stalin remains in Moscow, so moving the government away from the front line. General Hideki Tojo becomes the 40th Prime Minister of Japan. Um, in pop culture, the Maltese Falcon is released in the US, starring Humphrey Bogart, directed by John Huston. Fictional hero Wonder Woman appears in print in the first, for the first time. And Walt Disney releases its fourth animated film, Dumbo. It's also the last day of carving in Mount Rushmore, so Mount Rushmore is finished. And then finally, in November 1941, which is the month of publication of this book, the United States holds peace talks with Japan, interestingly. The Battle of Moscow begins, and a program I'd never heard of, a live blues program called King Biscuit Time, is broadcast for the first time on KFFA in Helena, Arkansas. It will attain its 17,000th broadcast in 2014, making it the longest-running daily American broadcast. Never heard of it, but sounds really interesting. So that's what's going in the war, right? Popular culture continues unabated, but you start to see greater cooperation, anticipatory cooperation between the Allies and the Americans. Japan is gearing up for war. It's it's calling up troops. And very tragically, the Holocaust um, logistics and fabrications and killings are continuing apace. 
So let's get into the book N or M, published in this time, written in the shadow of a war that is becoming or being seen to be more severe, longer, more worrying, and where Britain and British people are really fearful of a German invasion. Let's remember this is published after most of Western Europe has fallen to the Germans, and it is absolutely feared that a British invasion will occur. And of course, if you think about this novel, it was meant to be written in the wake of Dunkirk. So it's meant to be written in the run-up to the Battle of Britain, which was the planned aerial and the executed aerial invasion of Britain. So it very much reflects that fear. Let's get into the characters of the novel. We have Tommy and Tuppence, our heroes, uh, long married by now, middle-aged, frustrated to be left out of the war, but now secret agents on the South Coast. Tommy the brawn and Tuppence the brain. I think part of the charm of the Tommy and Tuppence books is their marriage. It's their witty interchanges. It's the fact that they really are a very unusually proto-feminist marriage of equals, which I love. They are both staying at a boarding house run by Mrs. Perenna, who is the landlady pretending to be Spanish. But we realise that her husband was actually an Irish nationalist who was killed for treason. This is the period where the Irish are fighting for independence. So... This immediately raises suspicions. Is she really a true loyal Brit or is she someone who would sympathise with the Irish? She has a daughter who is grown called Sheila Perenna, who is very pretty and very smart. And Sheila Perenna is attracted to Carl von Dienem, who is a refugee and research chemist who's come over from Germany. And he says, my two brothers are in concentration camps. My father died in one. My mother died of sorrow and fear. And I think this is significant because it shows that the word concentration camp, the phrase concentration camp, is familiar to mass market British readers, but more seen as somewhere where politically undesirable people are put by the Germans as opposed to Jews. And he's a really interesting character because he is a German who has fled the regime and whose family have been persecuted by the regime. But to the British, how far do they see him as someone with whom they should sympathize? Or how far do they fear him as a German and potentially someone who's putting this on as an act and who is really a Nazi sympathizer? So I think it's a really subtle and interesting portrait of the dilemma and maybe the suffering of Germans who were in England at the time. Other guests at the house include Major Bletchley, who is the classic Agatha Christie's very pompous, retired official. Um, He is rather old fashioned. He has very regressive views on women and foreigners. Um, For those of you in Britain, you'll realise that Major Bletchley is named after Bletchley Park. Oh, that's rather what the British authorities feared had happened. Bletchley Park was the secret British intelligence location where the Enigma machine was being decoded and a lot of very secret decryption work was taking place. And when the book was published, MI5 got very worried that Agatha Christie had been revealing secrets, partly because she was best friends with Diddy Knox, who was a female codebreaker who helped break the Enigma machine. So rather than sort of interrogate Agatha Christie directly, they sent Dilly Knox over to have a bit of a chat. And Agatha revealed that she named uh, Major Bletchley after Bletchley the place, which is where the code breaking station is. But it's also where there's a rather plain Jane train station that she'd been stuck in. So that's where the name came from. So all panic averted. We also have Mr. Cayley and Mrs. Cayley. Mr. Cayley has extensive business dealings in Germany and has been to travel there. 
and gives us his view of what's going on there. And you get some of the usual guff about Hitler improving things. But it is really interesting that he's the one who points out that the war could take six years. So he clearly is bringing his insights to bear or maybe Agatha Christie's insights to bear through that character. We also have Mrs. Sprott and her baby Betty, who speaks in rather garbled English. And Mrs. Sprott seems to be a rather lackadaisical young mother, not a particularly attentive one. And baby Betty, I think, can be seen a little bit like the dog in Dumb Witness insofar as she's there in her garbled English to maybe accidentally point things out or to sort of be an agent of information in her unintentionally comic way. Rounding out the cast of characters, we have Mrs. O'Rourke, who's who is genuinely Irish, who is loud and fat, apparently, a former antique dealer, and is really quite uh, scary insofar as she's like a real snoop. And she really gets into other people's business. And she's the one who alerts us very early on that Mrs. Perenna is claiming to be Irish or maybe has an Irish connection. And is it really real? Because Mrs. O'Rourke would know a proper Irish woman anywhere. So this is what Agatha Christie says of Mrs. O'Rourke. There was something about Mrs. O'Rourke that had an unholy fascination for Tuppence. She was rather like an ogress, dimly remembered from early fairy tales. With her bulk, her deep voice, her unabashed beard and moustache, her deep twinkling eyes and the impression she gave of being more than life-size. She was indeed not unlike some childhood's fantasy. So I think in Mrs. Rourke, we get someone a little bit like Mrs. Boynton. And there is something very odd, isn't there, about Agatha Christie sort of fat shaming these very dominant older women who have beady eyes and see through everybody. Um, But she's no doubt very intelligent and a really interesting character. And then last but not least, we have Commander Hagedock, who isn't actually staying in the boarding house. He lives sort of up the coast in a coastal house. He's a friend of Major Bletchley, which is how um, Tommy gets to meet him. He's the local ARP warden. So that was the air raid precautions unit. And ARP wardens were meant to just make sure that civilians were protected from air raids. And the responsibility lay with the local councils who were meant to organise these people, as well as messengers, ambulance drivers, rescue parties. Um, Really, this kicked into gear in 1937 when people realised that effectively war was coming. From the start of the war in September 1939, the ARP wardens were the people who would have to enforce the blackout. So the idea that after dark, you had to have very heavy curtains and shutters on all your houses, commercial buildings, so that when the German bombers were flying overhead, it would be less easy to spot the towns and to have bombing targets. And when the blitz starts, they are the people on the ground who are meant to deal with the bombs, make sure that the air raid sirens are going, that people are directed to shelters, um, and really just to be at the front line of the civil defence of this country. So being a local ARP warden is definitely a position of trust and some responsibility, and kind of perfectly suited to retired military. And I think that for those in Britain who are familiar with the long-running TV comedy show Dad's Army will, will have a very clear picture of what these people do. And I think in a way that Agatha Christie has prepared us for Commander Haydock and Major Bletchley, because in many of her novels, she's had these sort of retired Anglo-Indian colonial officers and retired generals and retired mid-level military officers. And in a sense, it's quite nice to see one put to good work rather than just to sit there spouting regressive views that she increasingly starts to mock. So those are the characters that Tommy and Tuppence has to figure out who is the man and who is the woman that are the Nazi fifth columnists. 
In terms of whether the novel is progressive or regressive, I think it's an interesting mix of the two. And again, I think this is so valuable because it gives us an insight into where the mass market readership was in Britain at the time. There is phrenology. (laughs) Oh, poor Agatha Christie, where she refers to the Prussian skull of Haydock, the shape of his skull, so clearly a wrong one. She refers to the Irish temper of Sheila. So Mrs. Mrs. Perenna and her daughter are seen as having undesirable Irish traits of being hot-tempered, which is clearly a racist trope. We do get the reference in the discussion about internment camps, which I think is very indicative of the discussion that was happening at the time. And really, it's Major Bletchley who has the most fuddy-duddy old-fashioned opinions. At one point, he says, I'm with you, Meadows. I'm with you. Women are all very well in their place, but not before breakfast. He chuckled a little. Better be careful, old man. She's a widow, you know. He's actually implying that Tuppence is going to be on the prowl for a second husband because she's feigning that she's a widow. Where I think the, the novel is actually progressive rather than regressive is in its discussion of refugees. And I think it's fascinating that, you know, we have to remember that Agatha Christie wrote an incredibly sympathetic portrait of Hercule Poirot as a Belgian refugee in World War I. And once again, in Karl von Dienem, I think she's giving the impression of what it would be like to be a German refugee in England with everyone suspicious of you. There is also a Polish character called Wanda Polanska, who I think is portrayed very sympathetically when she appears. And even at this stage of the war, Agatha Christie is rather sympathetic through the voice of Tuppence to putting herself in the shoes of the average German. And she says, look, you know, we're fighting to defend our country. And I'm sure for the average German, they're fighting to defend theirs. I mean, they're just ordinary people, you know. So, you know, this is probably in the time before people had widespread knowledge of the Holocaust and the true horrors of the Nazi regime. But it is interesting to see a very human side of Agatha Christie, and particularly, I think, in her treatment of refugees in the country. Moving then to adaptations, because this is neither a Poirot nor a Miss Marple, there are very few adaptations of this book. In fact, there is precisely one. And it was broadcast on the BBC in 2015. It was part of a six-part adaptation of two Tommy and Tuppence novels. So the final three parts were N or M. I actually haven't watched it and I'm not going to watch it um, because while I recognise that any TV show or film is is the product of so many people's skills and talents, the lead actor in this is not someone whose works I care to patronise. So... I will leave you all to watch if you feel like it and let us know whether you think it's any good. Okay, so with that, I am going to leave this part of the mini pod here and get into the spoilers after the end credits music. If you want to follow along at home, the next novel that we will be covering in episode 32 will be The Body in the Library, which was originally published in February 1942 and is, well, it's a Jane Marple novel insofar as Miss Marple appears rather late on in it but it is a more conventional murder mystery. Before we leave, though, I do want to point out that this novel is very much the high watermark of World War II references in Agatha Christie, and I think she took very seriously, sadly, the feedback from her American publishers that the American public would not respond to this much wartime reference. And I think it's very sad because I love 
reading and seeing what Agatha Christie reflected of the war. And I really regret that after this, the novels were much more about escaping the war rather than reflecting on it. Um, But anyway, for what it's worth, this novel remains a very interesting little vignette of those early days of suspicion and paranoia. Okay, folks, so let's get into the solution and spoilers for this novel. The solution to the novel is that the the fifth columnists are Commander Haydock and Mrs. Sprott. The solution for Mrs. Sprott is that her daughter is abducted by Wanda Polanska and that she proves to be an absolute crack shot in shooting this poor Polish refugee to get her daughter back. So you wonder why is she such a crack shot? And also, why would a real mother shoot so close to her own daughter? I mean, it's just nuts. So the the garbled language of Betty proves to be very, very important, as do her accoutrements of children's books. So pay attention to the silly babbling of, of Betty Sprott is the, the real clue there. And then her partner in crime in turn is Commander Haydock, which if we're paying attention to Agatha Christie's prejudices, we know is a wrong one because he has a Prussian skull. Um, there are no real clues to lead us to him other than that. It's kind of bizarre. And I just want to read something that 2.0 slash Pat, my partner in crime in these Agatha Christie podcasts, uh, wrote on the Discord, which is a great way for you to get involved in these discussions. Just look for Vassals of Kingsgrave or VOK podcast and follow the link to our Discord server. He writes, the adaptation isn't supposed to be very good, so probably best swerved. It's the first Tommy and Tuppence I've read, so I'm not always, so I'm not sure if this always... It's the first Tommy and Tuppence I've read, so I'm not sure if this is always the way with them, and they were a bit thin. The other thing was credibility. I mean, I have a pretty low bar for accepting stuff in fiction, but discovering the baddie by slipping on some soap and knocking a secret panel did seem too incredible to even me, and I was thinking, it's a bit lazy, Agatha. So that's, you know, that's exactly how Tommy finds out what's going on. I mean, I guess maybe that's the way that Tommy was always going to discover who did it because he's not that smart. So it was going to be some sort of physical pratfall. So maybe it's just very character specific, but it is weak. And I don't think this is the best plotted book. I think the only real reason to read this novel is just to see some of the racial prejudices, some of the discussions around internship and rationing and the long duration of the war and to see how the refugee issue is dealt with. I think that is all really, really fascinating. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode on the body in the library, which though not war related in its own way does capture a kind of social milieu that we don't often see in Agatha Christie, a rather tawdry, again, coastal town, lots of transient people, um, good commentary on modern dating and social life, and sexual mores. So another kind of interesting, grungy, slightly gnarly Agatha Christie. Anyways, thank you for listening. (laughs) 